What it do, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Damp Valley coming at you with another mailbag. Super humbled and appreciative that we can, we're at, I'm at the point where we can do two mailbags a week if we wanted to, assuming that time allows, where we have our Discord members um, who will get priority on the questions, especially because they tend to explain theirs more. And then we do a YouTube and and Twitter one. That might be the goal for me during the off-season. Again, I don't know how much content I'm going to continue pumping out. We've been a daily podcast, though, for like the past two months, which is wild, but the response has been great. I enjoy doing this, so let's keep going. The quick reminders, though, the usual housekeeping notes, please, please throw us the permanent subscription wherever you're consuming us. If you're on YouTube and me in the world, if you hit the subscribe button down below, like the video, comment to engage, Help the algorithm love us back as we continue to try and get the Hardwood Knox name out there. If this is your first time checking us out, don't click out of this video. Watch the whole thing uh, or at least subscribe. Trust me. We take ourselves very unseriously around here. You'll love us. The usual notes for the podcast as well. If you're listening to this on whatever podcast player, uh, subscribe to us, download every episode, tell people about us, help us retweet our promos. If you have an issue with anything I say, you're free to DM me, um, comment on Twitter as well. All our social handles are on the screen or in the podcast and YouTube descriptions. Finally, join the Discord. Uh, we are closing in on 100 members. It's not like this huge group. I know the localized uh, coverage podcasts tend to get a shit ton more, but the group in there is absolutely spectacular. Uh, it's a very small portion of our audience, but uh, the response, again, has been great. I'm able to do an entire mailbag episode based off the questions that they they are asking. So I appreciate every single one of you on Discord. Shouts out to you. Link is in the podcast podcast description and below on the youtube video as well without further delay though and this was almost a two minute delay probably more than that when you factor in the uh the introduction let's get to the discord questions had a whole bunch that were all of them were really i mean all our questions are really good but a lot of these were just super interesting to think about uh we'll start with strops i'm just going in the order that they came in dan favalli has a vial of truth serum that he can use to ask one gm player coach whatever in the nba one question that will be truthfully answered. Who do you ask and what question are you asking them? I mean, selfishly, I'm going to go with something Knicks related here. And I think the question right now would be, I want to ask Tibbs, why can't you play Julius Randle and Obi Toppin together? I also want to ask Leon Rose, was Shea Gilgis Alexander or Tyrese Halliburton even on your radar? Those are the questions selfishly as a fan that I probably want to ask. Um, but push comes to shove. I'd love to ask, like, I'm just going to go through some of the ringers here. I'd love to ask, uh, Sam Presti, just are, what are your thoughts? Are you tanking right now? Like just to hear a GM tell me that they were actually tanking. I don't think the Thunder are tanking this season to be clear. Um, I would also love to ask, um, Adam Silver, just a whole bunch of questions, just sort of like, well, what do you really think about, uh, you know, Robert Sarver? Why haven't we reached the end of that? Uh, you know, hostile workplace investigation, which is probably the, the actual kindest way to put it. That's probably, we went through the GM coach and commissioner, whatever. If I could ask one player a question, this is just something I probably haven't thought about a ton. I want to ask Kawhi, like if he was ever even really close to going back to Toronto, just because I feel like that's almost a dynasty that was derailed. Uh, maybe I'm being like too recent with that. Uh, I'd probably ask Frank Nilakina what he wants his nickname to be since he hates the uh, Frankie Smokes and the French Prince, apparently. Um, I'd want to ask Rudy Gobert and or Donovan Mitchell, like on a scale of one to a hundred, how much they actually hated each other. Where did that all go wrong? Those are just some of the questions like boring a hole in my brain. I'd probably want to ask Danny Ainge how close he ever came to, you know, we make jokes about his almost. I don't think people sort of missing. This is a fucking stupid tangent, but here we go. Anyway, people misinterpret like the Danny Ainge jokes that he never made moves. And no, we know he made moves like they traded for Kyrie. They made the Isaiah Thomas trade in the first place. You sign Gordon Hayward, you sign Al Horford like that. That is a team that made moves, but it was like always the leaks about the almost. Oh, they were this close on so-and-so that were coming out. Oh, they offered uh, 90 first round picks for Jesse Swinslow. So that is where just sort of the, the jokes spawn from. We know that he, I mean, he did the Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett trade and just really slammed the Brooklyn Nets, future into the ground. Um, so we know they made moves, but this is more about the nature of just like all those almost always leaking, I would say more so than any other team. Um, I would like to know, speaking of that, what the second best offer was for Rudy Gobert. I think the Timberwolves came 
just from the top rope and probably beat anyone far and away. I'm just curious if anyone was ever close. I definitely want to ask Kevin Durant if he actually loves Kyrie Irving this much, if he regrets going to Brooklyn at all and tethering his livelihood to such an enigma. Uh, I would go as far as saying a detriment to his team. I'd also ask James Harden, like, did you like, what was that like? Did you leave specifically because of Kyrie? I guess there, that's not really a mystery um, to answer that. I'd probably ask, you know, Joel Embiid some really honest questions about Ben Simmons and then vice versa, man. Uh, if any player, coach, GM, executive agent wants to come on this podcast and just get super honest, I'm willing to ask the the very dis- difficult questions. I just, and I was just having this conversation while I was on, making an appearance with the, uh, on the uncontested podcast, fellow blue wire pod covers the thunder. Go check them out. Uh, I don't really pursue like the higher profile interviews. And I've leaned on the the solo format as we go daily, mostly because I know that we're going to have a, a shit ton of look ahead content, off season grades, where it's going to be guest after guest after guest. And as you all know, if you're regular listeners, I hate intruding upon people's existences, but also just like we've done, we had a player on years ago. Uh, I don't want to single their name out. Maybe longtime listeners remember um, we've had like, we've had guests on from bigger outlets. We've had on, I don't even want to get into the details because I feel like we've had on very few of them that you're going to know who it is. Those conversations are fun. I enjoy them. Some of the best shit gets talking about off the record. And so that's why I don't pursue like the, the player, former executive type stuff because they're trying to be too diplomatic or I don't want to say afraid to say things, but that's just the nature of how it is. Even on a lot of this player driven content, like, yeah, they get deep on like Draymond's podcast or JJ Reddick's podcast. And so you can tune into those, but that's why I, I prefer listening to like analysts talking to, to analysts or these, you know, hopefully you enjoy this solo podcast. One of the best solo podcasters in the business, by the way, who I must admit, I haven't listened to in just um, a little bit. And I'm sad that the um, Detroit Pistons versus everybody podcast doesn't look like it's up and running anymore. Uh, Laz Jackson. If you don't follow him on Twitter at Laz chance, that's at L A Z C H A N C E. Uh, he was one of the best, he is one of the best solo podcasts I've ever listened to. Also, Keith Parrish. Um, he, we know him from Fast Break Breakfast, and we've been on each other pods a couple of times, but he also has the Grit and Grinds podcast, um, the Memphis Grizzlies podcast, that he's a lot of the time solo. And those two just do uh, a fantastic job whenever they've um, done solo episodes together. So shout out to them. I don't know if that was anywhere near the answer that you were looking for, Strops, but there was my tangent. Uh, Cosmic Raccoon. God, love that Discord name. Says, I'd love to hear a theory of the case for how the Timberwolves defense is going to work with Cat at the four. He struggled on the perimeter as a five, and fast fours will blow right by him. And since Gobert can't punish wings on either side of the court, teams can still put the five on Cat. So it isn't as if the mismatch on defense of Cat as a four will be an advantage on offense. I know they're staggered their minutes, but to start and likely finish the game with Cat trying to be a four defensively seems like it's going to be a big issue for them, even in the regular season, let alone the playoffs. Uh, first and foremost, this is a question I think everyone is pondering a ton. Uh, shout out to the the best like content I've consumed where they've discussed it or written about it. Uh, Dane Moore of the Dane Moore podcast did a great job and sort of a deep dive. It was uh, it wasn't his initial reaction to the pod, I don't think. I think he did a follow up one. But you should go check that out. Also, Nakias Duncan wrote a great piece at basketballnews.com about the the fit, the concerns, the highs, the lows, um, everything about Rudy Gobert, Carl Anthony Towns. So. I don't think a lot changes for the Wolves defensively right away because they had Carl Anthony Towns. Like they didn't always use him as a four necessarily on defense, but they had him coming up high and being really super aggressive. Now you get to do that. And then just Rudy Gobert is behind you. And they had like Jared Vanderbilt last season. That's just, you know, Rudy Gobert is a different animal there. And uh, animals, a bad term there, a different beast there. So like, I just feel you can give Towns more free reign and Rudy has spent the past, the better past of the half decade, covering up for a ton of perimeter issues with the Utah Jazz. And when you have guys like Jaden McDaniels or Kyle Anderson, plus Anthony Edwards, who I don't really know how I feel about him necessarily as an, a consistent on-ball defender, but he can just be disruptive away from the ball or when it comes to making plays, forcing turnovers. That's an upgrade over what he was working with in Utah collectively. Maybe, maybe you think Royce O'Neal is better than... Uh, Anthony Edwards overall defensively, that might actually be a debate this past season. Uh, shout out to Royce O'Neal, though. He's been overtaxed for way too long uh, on the defensive end in Utah. Excited to see what he does in Brooklyn or his next team, depending on what the Nets do. Um, yeah, where was I? But you have Jane McDaniels and Kyle Anderson. That's just two solid guys in front of you. So I'm not too worried about 
the aspect of how do you go about it for you know 40 to 44 minutes of the game there'll be plenty of staggering like cosmic raccoon said if you can let towns be a little bit more aggressive um also having like someone who is just the single best rim protector maybe the nba has ever seen uh and we're actually going to get into rudy gobert a little bit later with another question to where i think that um our question asker whom i appreciate and love dearly obviously because i love everyone dearly in discord might be underrating rudy gobert's speed like if is there a chance that Carly Towns could just learn and take cues from Rudy Gobert where maybe he's even more interesting when he's playing the five um, or he can look Rudy Gobert. Maybe he's not like the most explosive or quick laterally, um, but he is someone who is able to get downhill. If he's like kind of going East West and his body's turned or knows how to use length and space to his advantage when he's defending outside the basket. I'm not saying that the Timberwolves brought in Rudy Gobert to, to you know, tutor Carly Towns. Carly Towns is just underwhelmed defensively a lot i just think now you're sort of giving him more of a license on defense without there being a potential drawback where i do think and cosmic raccoon cosmic raccoon touches upon this it becomes an issue is in crunch time are you making the tough decisions of oh we're only going to close with gobert and we'd rather have like a kyle anderson and Jaden mcdaniel set up on the front line no because you just super maxed Carl Anthony Towns, not that it kicks in, but like you have all this money invested in Gobert and Carl Anthony Towns. They're going to play together down the stretch of big games. And that's where against maybe just more athletic ball handlers at the four, or if teams are able to create mismatches, they still have to worry if they get inside uh, about Rudy Gobert, but pulling up over Towns or getting, you know, just creating space, whether it's with step backs or, or skate dribble threes, uh, maybe just coming up on popping from the mid range, which we know that, uh, that's you know part of the appeal of having Rudy Gobert there is he's such a deterrent. People will pull up from mid-range, but if you're getting by behind Towns, he's not the type of player who's going to come up and uh, dismantle that player, that shot attempt from behind. And so I do think there's a real concern there. Um, I'm just not worried about it overall in the regular season. Uh, I feel like the Wolves have a chance to be like a top three or four seed in the West. I don't know if I would put them in like, and I didn't when I power ranked my contenders in the top seven or eight contenders in the league right now. I think it's a real issue in crunch time, and I don't know how it's going to work or if it's going to work um, in crunch time or the postseason overall until we actually see it in action. But I think that the Wolves have adequately covered up for Towns. Now, whether it's an issue that you had to cover up for someone that you just decided to supermax remains to be seen. Carl Anthony Towns is one of the most valuable offensive players in the NBA, especially at his position, but just, just overall. And I think that this pairing ends up being on both ends of the floor, just looking at Gobert's rim running, uh, I think it's and screening. I think it's going to end up being way more dominant than than people think, at least for the regular season. Um, but there's going to have to be an improvement from Towns, or is it just Rudy Gobert papers over so much it doesn't matter? We're going to see him, you know, and that could be part of it too. It's just like having Jane McDaniel specifically on the court, even Anthony Edwards. Like if Rudy Gobert needs to come up higher once Towns gets beat. Um, you have guys behind you who you can trust to make those secondary stops um, of players who cut to the basket or even if the ball handler still continues to get through. So um, Rudy Gobert covers so much space that I just don't think uh, the concerns about the Towns fit matter as much for, like I said, 40 to 45 minutes of the game at this point. We'll have to see if teams will be able to pick them apart more meticulously over the course of a best of seven series, though. Next question comes from muckle and i'm trying to do a video uh, our one question i'm hoping for friday um just depending on the news cycle and how much time i have um on colin sexton specifically maybe he signs with cleveland and that that's all moot that's also kind of why i've been holding off i'm afraid to do anything that could get dated really quickly on one question anyway uh but muckle said i was actually going to ask a colin sexton question too assuming the Cavs resign him do you like him starting next to darius Garland or coming off the bench as the sixth man I won't go too into detail into the numbers and stuff just behind this because I've already started mapping out my little soliloquy and notes there. Just in case you thought that this was a random podcast with no forethought, you're mostly right. But I I think I like Colin Sexton's fit next to Darius Garland more than I like it for Karis LeVert, who's just so much better on ball. I do think when you look at the setup now of the Cavs' current roster with Ricky Rubio coming back, a lot's going to depend on when he plays. I want Colin Sexton coming off the bench just because that means he's probably going to end up spending more minutes alongside Ricky Rubio. And he's the cleaner fit 
there. You're also, Ricky Rubio is going to cover up more for him defensively than Adarius Garland would. And I still have hope for Sexton uh, as an on-ball defender. Justin Rowan from the Chase Down Pod and I talked about this uh, in a podcast. I think we talked about just before. It was after the the, uh, the lottery. So I think that's the smartest move right now. Um, where you could, there might be room for flexibilities if Cleveland no longer wants to go the the three big, so to speak, route. We know Allen and Mobley will be starting. We know Garland will be starting. And then the other two slots are kind of up in the air. Um, if you're going with marketing, yeah, there's only that one available. If you're willing to start like uh, Lavert and Sexton, like just to really kind of drown the opposition in offense, I don't, I, I would like to see that three guard combination just a little bit more. And Karis Lavert is big enough to where you can get away with him at the three for a little bit. Um, but because he's so like good, or I don't want to say good, but better on the ball than off. I don't want him spending a ton of time with Ricky Rubio. Colin Sexton next to Rubio makes more sense. And so him being the sixth or seventh man, or maybe their co-sixth man type situation once Rubio is healthy, that's the route I think you should go. Um, but again, it's only, I'm just assuming they're still going to start marketing, in which case you are choosing between Lavert or Darius Garland. Theoretically, you could throw Isaac Okoro in there. Uh, I just think you might as well, uh, lean into the like the shifty defensive model on the bench at this point. Like you have Harul Neto, you have Ricky Rubio, you have um oh my god, you have Isaac Okoro. So like throw those guys out there, and then you have Kevin Love and Colin Sexton to sort of anchor like your primary offense in those situations. And do we see Akbaji? Does he does he crack the rotation? I'm I'm really curious to see how he fits in with the team. So I I think that's the route I would go, Muckle. It's again. I really need to know what the Cavs are planning on doing at the three. If it's marketing or if it's a Coro, it's I'm bringing Texan off the bench. If you're getting to a point where they're willing, if, if the possibility of starting both Levert and Sexton is on the table, I would at least consider it. I still think I'd probably bring Sexton off the bench, stagger him from Levert and Garland a little bit more. What will be interesting to see is how they close games. Three of the closing spots, again, all sewn up Mobley, Allen and Garland. We didn't see enough of Sexton last year to know how he factors into the to the crunch time units, but could they go the three guard route for crunch time? Or is that gonna is marketing gonna have a lion's share of those minutes? Do you lean defense with Isaac Okoro? Is that gonna be a situational decision? I'm sure to some extent it will be, but uh that rotation question is fascinating. Even if again Sexton's coming off the bench, I'm gonna really be looking at and this is when he goes back to Cleveland, by the way. I'm really gonna be looking at how they tailor their closing units and even just what their second unit ends up looking like, whether it's being uh, willing to change. I would also argue what happens if Levert gets traded? He's extension eligible. And if you bring Sexton back, maybe you're looking to trade Levert where I don't know if a team really wants him. Anyone that could use just a little more, a little bit more on ball offensive juice, like do the Mavericks try and get involved? And then are they compensating you to take on a, a Tim Hardaway Jr. Uh, I don't think they would give up Reggie Bullock for him, although Reggie Bullock would be a perfect fit. That's just one team that springs to mind anyway. So if a team that's looking for on-ball offense, or are you just using him as your primary salary fodder for something? If you really want to go after, I mean, like, what would a Karis Avert for Duncan Robinson trade look like if the Heat were willing to give you a pick in that scenario? Because Robinson's a really good fit there um, just to get more off-ball shooting for Cleveland. So that would also change the context of my answer if there's no Levert let's just say am I still bringing Colin Sexton off the bench yes I think because marketing starting I'd rather have Okoro there defensively was marketing's um, defense sort of a flash in the pan last year they were able to manipulate his matchups a ton so he wasn't necessarily going up against these true wings he was still moving a lot better than I thought he would and you'll always have Mobley and Jared Allen to, to paper over a lot of stuff um, but at that point I, I might still lean um, bringing Sexton off the bench because you want to surround Rubio with as much shooting as possible when he's healthy. Uh, and then also just like, if he's not healthy, who's your other creator if Sexton's immediately starting and Levert is gone. I guess potentially you could be getting someone then who's a, who's a creator. Um, but I would imagine that if you're moving Levert, it's to get like sort of a truer three, in which case you might want that three to start. And so I, I do think bringing Sexton off the bench is smartest. And it does seem like based on their contract offer, that's how the Cavs are, are viewing Sexton at this point. Glad asks, in three years time, who do you think is better, RJ Barrett or Devin Vassell? While I think RJ is the better player right now, if the Knicks get Donovan Mitchell, RJ becomes the fourth option. 
uh, behind um, Donovan, Brunson, and Randall, unless they move Randall, even so the third option. He won't necessarily get all the leeway opportunities that he should get to develop into the star. Vassell, on the other hand, is going to be the second, could become the first option on the Spurs, and have more than ample opportunity to develop and become a really good player. Also, I'm higher on Vassell's defensive ability um, than RJ, even though his defense is underrated. What are your thoughts? Because I know you're high on both. Yeah, this was like a almost mean question, Glad. Uh, talk about, I, I threw in the Thanos meme, uh, saying me having to choose between Devin Vassell and RJ Barrett long-term, the hardest choices require the the strongest of of wills. So I, the issue, he, I, I would frame it this way. I think RJ Barrett is going to be the better NBA player. I think Devin Vassell could end up being the, I don't want to say it could be more impactful, but the more sought after or easier to fit in NBA player. And so let's break this down. The difference in their games right now is self-creation. Uh, the Spurs have not given Vassell a ton of that opportunity. It did feel like, and I keep saying I need to look up the data on this and then don't, but it did feel like from what I was watching that they were throwing more ball screens Devin Vassell's way so that he could dribble into his his midi. I don't know that he's going to be anyone who ever like orchestrates these slow, methodical pick and rolls in the, the half court. RJ Barrett's already done that. Uh, about... 54% of his shots came off assists last year. About 80% of his sell shots came off assists last year. Uh, RJ Barrett's rim volume, he's taking like 40 plus percent of his looks at the rim. Vassell is only taking fewer than 20% there. Now, Vassell is the more efficient player. He's the better cutter and finisher at the rim right now. His, his opportunities are higher end too, because again, a lot of those are coming off passes. Uh, he was the more accurate three-point shooter last year. Again, he probably got a higher quality of looks, but RJ also isn't chucking these off the dribble threes necessarily either. And so I do kind of feel like their roles are going to be um, polar opposite long-term. And I know Glad mentions that uh, Vassell could be the second option on the Spurs. I really do think that San Antonio is going to probably have like a primo Keldon Johnson at the top of their pecking order. And maybe they might be willing to give like uh, Malachi Branham a little bit more run on ball where they're always going to view Vassell to me to some extent as complimentary. If they're willing to plumb the depths of his on ball skills where he is, let's just say their second option, whether you think that Primo's number one or Kelvin Johnson's going to wind up being number one. Uh, and after they extended Kelvin Johnson, I'm assuming that they're going to try and groom him more. Um, I, I need to see more from Vassell there before I'm prepared to say that there's self creation to his game. With all that said, RJ Barrett has been inefficient relative to the league average, shot under 60% at the rim. Last year, the fact that he got there frequently is a big deal, but he needs to turn uh, those opportunities into efficient opportunities, which he's just, again, he got better, but it remains to be seen. And what's also working against him, if we're looking at these players within the confines of their current team, Glad points out Barrett's getting nudged down the pecking order once again, just as he kind of got nudged down the pecking order to start last season with the players that the Knicks had signed. And let's not forget, like they might not trade Derrick Rose as part of the Mitchell deal. And so how attached is uh, Tibbs to running stuff through quickly if he stays or Derrick Rose if, if he's still there? So what I will say is that inconsistency of role type could be harmful to how R.J. Barrett is developed. What I do think helps him is he's a pretty good set three-point shooter already. And I think he's he can be more plug-and-play than a lot of people are crediting him. And I think that his defense is not just underrated, but actively good. I, I like Devin Vassell as a team defender more, as someone who's going to disrupt. I think I like R.J. Barrett a little bit more to go up against the physical, bigger wings if you need him to. Those are different kinds of defense. And the way I frame it is, I just believe that Vassell, you'll look at him and you'll be able to say, that guy fits anywhere. Sort of like a Mikhail Bridges, not saying that they're the exact same player. Um, his skill set is so... Shout out Tywin Dish. Don't forget to drink for this. His Mikael Bridges' skill set, Devin Vassell's skill set is so scalable, you put him anywhere. And so that might make him um, an equally, if not more valued asset player around the league. But with RJ, it still to me feels like there's a path to where he is your number one or two option on offense while also being maybe your second or third best defender on the team and that being an okay outcome. The two things that I think will be the turning points is what does Devin Vassell do if he gets more on-ball scoring volume? And then what happens with R.J. Barrett this season? Does he get more efficient in whatever role he has? And what what does that role look like? Are you going to at least give him the license to run more bench-heavy units, um, which they've had some success doing? A lot of that depends on whether they trade for Mitchell. 
uh, what they do with Randall after that. I do think while having Donovan, Brunson, and Randall on the same roster would stunt RJ's on-ball development, I do believe he's more plug-and-play than people are crediting. So I lean RJ Barrett, apparently because I'm a fucking homer, but kind of only slightly. There's just a lot that remains to be seen between these two. And I'm trying to think of like a good, just like mirror comparison to this, where it's like, look, like DeMar, I think it, you could look at it as like a DeMar DeRozan type scenario or even a, a Jimmy Butler type scenario where it's, uh, well, Jimmy Butler's like way too good on defense and DeRozan's not good enough on defense to compare to RJ. But DeRozan is harder to build an offense or, or fit into an offense in which he's not one of the two focal points just because he's so limited away from the ball. I don't think RJ's on that scale, but you would rather have DeRozan as an engine for the offense than say, like, a Mikhail Bridges, for instance, would be a good example. Um, and maybe even more than a Middleton, we're just looking at their difference in passing. Middleton's really good on offense. That might not be, and he's a better three-point shooter. So that could that could end up being the difference. I just don't know right now that I'd be comfortable saying the gap between uh, RJ and his skill set on offense is uh, compared to Devin Vassell is as large as that between DeRozan and Bridges, who's a very efficient player, but also very complimentary and it might just come down to a matter of preference i think we saw this a lot of people were up in arms about seth part now's player tiers at the athletic and he he mapped out his criteria and he was talking about sort of the brandon ingram versus dorian finney smith debate do i agree with it no but i understood where he was coming from in the sense that if you're trying to win basketball games it's easier to fit dorian finney smith into any version of any team than it would be for brandon ingram who does need to have more on ball volume and on ball volume can be a burden both for the player and the team because it suggests these like prescribed already allocated touches. And if the player in question is not necessarily worth that, it really does complicate matters. And there's still, I'm not saying bust potential with RJ, but there's like, there are swing developments that are going to sway his trajectory one way or the other. And when you kind of take in that, it feels like his, his type of usage can be inconsistent. I really need to see how the Knicks are going to deploy him next season, which will also rest on what they actually look like. That was my long ass way of saying, I lean RJ, but I'm willing to definitely entertain the outcome that it's Devin Vassell. And my initial framing just might be the best way for me to do it. RJ is the better basketball player and Devin Vassell just fits and can make an impact in more situations. Stupid jerk asks, what is the right way to think about the various events of the offseason? Seems like there's a consensus to take summer league performances, training camp anecdotes, and preseason with various sized grains of salt. What do you look for that you think has real predictive value as empty calories? That's a fun, that's an interesting question. I, my first, let's start with summer league. Um, I've learned to watch summer league through the lens of what what does this tell me about a player's skill set that I didn't already know? And in a lot of cases, it's everything because I didn't know something in the first place. But I lean a lot on, is there more self-creation there than we thought? Because not all of these guys are going to have those types of on-ball touches once they get to the, to the big clubs, to the regular season, if they make the rosters or they're even some of the top prospects. And so you want to try and project forward and see, oh, there's going to be more for um, Team X to plumb from player Y long-term, whether he's a rookie or... Let's use Desmond Bain's case in 2021 where he really showed a lot more on-ball juice and they gave him that license. He wasn't running things. He still had to play his complementary role, um, but you saw hints of it in summer league, a more expansive, a broader offensive skill set. He busted out during the regular season. And then I also think it works the other way. Um, can players who are known as ball dominant, like how do they look moving away from the ball? Or if that's how their role projects to be in the NBA, let's use Keegan Murray as an example. Yeah, it would have been really easy to give him a ton of from scratch touches with the Kings in summer league, but they still had him kind of floating around and trying to find his spaces and relocations. And he did really well doing that. And so knowing that's what he's supposed to be strong with, um, I think that matters. But then there's also Benedict Matherin. I did not realize had, maybe some people did, had all this on-ball juice. He had some really difficult jumpers for the Pacers. That shows me that for a team that's rebuilding, they should probably give him more of a chance to work on ball. I tend to throw negative performances out the window unless they're like, you know, is it year two? Is it year three? We know the Hawks kind of made a decision on Sharif Cooper based off how much he struggled. Um, I don't view, I, I try to throw efficiency and like, a learning, I, I try to account for a major learning curve if players are in the first two years of their career, even the third, if it's a, a vastly different type of, of usage. And so 
My thinking is I'm more inclined to lean toward reserved optimism for the bright spots in summer league than I am to read too deeply into struggles or, you know, go over the top when it comes to positivity. Uh, I did, I went off the, the rails when we, I saw Desmond Bain last year, but like, you know, those instances, I don't actually think that Chet Holmgren is like Kevin Rand and Giannis Antetokounmpo and Carl Anthony Towns and Dirk combined into one player. Like, but that's what summer league taught us in moments. So, um, that's how I view summer league training camp anecdotes. I just, I don't take, I don't ascribe any value to, I don't, I know NBA practices are hashtag built different. Uh, I don't care. It's, it, you can't simulate game speed. I don't care like that. Every player has somehow lost 10 pounds and is single digit body fat, but actually got stronger, um, over the off season, how they gained 20 pounds of muscle while losing, you know, five pounds overall from their body weight in a span of like 10 to 12 weeks. Uh, is not possible. Can you look at players and see if they look like they're in better shape than they were last season? Sure. You can definitely take that away. And then preseason, I kind of view it um, through the same lens as summer league where, except I, like I'm going to throw it out the window for veterans are struggling in preseason. I'm just not going to care if their track record is that they're just really good during the regular season. I think it's just another extension for, can we look at the fringe rotation battles and see like who's winning out there? Um, and that's mostly going to be done when you're looking probably at like rookies and sophomores and third year players, or, you know, is it something in Milwaukee where you're kind of wondering like, you know, who's going to get their final rotation spot? Or we know that Joe Ingles is injured. Chris Middleton's injured. Did Marjan Bochamp play well enough like he did in summer league to warrant some immediate minutes. Um, and then just position battles. Like how are the magic going to structure their front court? That's less of a pivotal question. Now that we know that Jonathan Isaac probably won't even be ready to start the season. My God. Um, so, I if I had to rank how, the meaningfulness of those three, uh, I'm going to put training camp anecdotes, practices, scrimmages, whatever, dead last. I'm going to put preseason in second. And I still view summer league as just, it seems like there's the most structure, the most level of competition there as well. Like they, they have a uh, an MVP trophy to give out and there's a summer league championship. So that's most telltale to me. And then at the top of everything, of cor course, is off-season workout videos. Shout out Ben Simmons. Good question though, stupid jerk. Um, next question comes from JT Alexander, more of a broad question for you, Dan, what thing annoys you the most about watching the NBA team slash players? And then on the flip side, what's the best thing about covering the whole league? I'll start with the best thing about covering the whole league is it's very much easier to come up with content, um, because I'm able to zoom out and man, during the COVID shutdown, I don't know how localized podcasts were able to get through, like just hats off to, Nick film school and the timeline podcast and, you know, dishes and dimes who they delve more into league wide coverage, the uncontested, the Euro step, like all the great team podcasts um, I, to have to go in day in and day out when there's not always stuff to talk about. Yeah. During the season, there's game previews and there's game reactions. And then like to start the off season draft prep and rumors and free agency, like once you get to on a normal timeline, it's been all kinds of fucked up over the past couple of years. Uh, once you get to like the middle of July, Summer League has settled down and you're, you know, being held hostage by the Kevin Durant and Donovan Mitchell trade rumors. That, that's just tough to come up with content. I'm even struggling now. Um, I tend to cater. I like to cater to the audience, which is why I love mailbags. I guess it could be a sign of laziness, but I want people to want to come back and listen. And if new questions, if new, um, potentially new listeners ask a question on Twitter or YouTube and it makes them more likely to come back, I just... I enjoy that. And I think it, you know, it makes me think about things I wouldn't necessarily talk about on my own. I'm certainly not going to ask myself what's the best thing about covering the league. Um, and I also, from my perspective, uh, covering the entire NBA, like it does allow me to um, sort of roll with the urgency. And I do get sort of that adrenaline rush and endorphin rush when I'm under a tight deadline or I have to react to like this big game, this big news rumor, or I'm writing about, um, you know, maybe a team that's not getting enough shine or a team that's in strife and getting too much shine. And I love being able to, to zoom out and write and talk about every team, um, focus on singular ones when I can. And then it's always just fresh for me when I'm covering the whole league, the sacrifice I am making and not like high is mighty sacrifice. The concession I personally am making is I can't distill the game in real time or even watching back in slow motion, like a Caitlin Cooper, like a Mo to uh, like an Akias Duncan, like a Zach Lowe. And what they are able to do on a national scale is so incredible um, because they're able to recognize all these different pet plays. 
and blown assignments again in real time. And I have to go back. I have to do my own reading and, and look up stuff. And I'm, I'm, so I'm conceding that to begin with. I'd probably be better at it if I'm looking at, you know, if I was covering just the, uh, the, the Cleveland Cavaliers, for example, I'd probably be better, at it. but I'm now also committing to, I'm not going to know as much about uh, the Orlando magic as people that cover that team intimately. And I do sometimes lament that when you hear these podcasts and they're able to talk very in depth about the substitution patterns. And for me to come up with that research, I'm either citing someone who said it, or I have to like dig into the weeds to find it. And, um, and I think it takes a commitment to watching games when they're not happening. Uh, and yes, there are people that watch the same game over and over. That's not something I'm doing. If I'm working on a piece in particular, like, yeah, possession by possession breakdowns are super valuable after the fact. I'm also, look, the sausage is made the way the sausage is made. Uh, my job at Bleach Report is extremely collaborative. Uh, they pitch me, I pitch them. I able, I have carte blanche essentially over what I write. The headlines are not always my choice, but if I try to change something or don't want to write something like I'm never, people think we're forced to write something or that we're purposely being inflammatory. That's not what I'm doing. Um, but to, uh, to also go about it that way, I recognize that there's also going to be like sort of a, a disdain there among fans that I think are, uh, reasonably distrustful of the national media or writers or podcasters. And I think that's fair one because localized coverage is so good. And there is some just like low brow coverage or detrimental coverage or just very, not even surface level. They're not even scratching the surface with their analysis. They're relying on um, tropes that are outdated trends that are outdated or just the same old thing over and over and over again. I don't ever want to be that person. I try to be the least insufferable um, national writer and podcast that I can be. And I like that challenge. I like challenging myself. I hate my sleep schedule. I hate that I work so much. I hate that I just really, I, I plan to have free time and then I don't. Um, but I also like, I, I need to have that drive, that push to achieve for something. And I like, I, I think that covering the entire league challenges me on this broader scale um, to where I can, I can sustain that drive over a long period of time. And I've been covering this league now for, for over a decade at large. And I've had to adapt the way I've covered. I've, I've learned a lot. Uh, and I really do appreciate that. Like I said, though, there is a part of me that's like one wishes I was either just as smart and talented as a Caitlin Cooper, just as like an example there, or, or Zach Lowe. Um, like, you know, when you're looking for the combination of writing skills, film analysis, the ability to actually talk about perspective, perspective fits or, or transactions in Zach Lowe's case, they're able to, he's able to report at points. Um, and then he's going to dig deep into the salary cap, but Caitlin Cooper can like tell you like really more specific plays about teams that she's not even technically covering. Um, she does cover the entire league. So, and she can like, she can do that like on a whim. And then she, what I really think that she's great at, and this is going off the rails here again, um, projecting team fits in this technical way. And yet it's so accessible because even I can understand it. Maybe I have to go back and reread it because it's too high level for me at points, but it's so accessible the way that she's able to write without it coming off as drab. It's, and she's actually just one of the best writers in the business. That's like, I appreciate it. Just like I appreciate all the in-depthness of the localized coverage. There's a level of envy there that also contributes to my drive though, is that as younger people are coming into this business um, who the, I don't, I'm not saying I view them as how do I put this to not I'm trying to make my the most humble way to put this is I get very warm and fuzzy inside when people ask me for advice. Um, but I'm not saying I consider myself on the same level as some of the younger people who are way smarter when it comes to covering the exodus in the game. But seeing a younger generation come in, invest so much time, that's gonna push me to continue to go harder and harder and either be more creative or at least, like I said, be a little bit more diligent. So that's what I love about covering the league is that I can bemoan the adaptive nature sometime. And there's definitely times where I feel like I do get an unfair rap because I'm not covering a single team. And it's like, I'm willing to have a discourse with anyone. I will be hostile back to you on Twitter. If you're hostile to me, either out of like just fucking nowhere where, because I comment on Leon Rose, you're telling me I'm pro domestic violence. Yeah, I will go off. Uh, normally I'll try and give even people who are rude, like one or two responses of, Hey, like I'm not inferring anything about you as a human based off this interaction. Why are you doing that for me? Uh, it does, but it does. I'm not going to lie. It grades on me. And so I'm not saying it's easier for people who cover a single team. I know for a fact that people who are covering a singular team, they get too much shit from fans who only want positive coverage or coverage that aligns with their own views. 
of the team. And if you say anything dissenting or that diverges from the prevailing uh, prevailing thought, uh, yeah, you're just absolutely uh, crucified for it. So like there's, and I look white male here, no struggle here in the industry. There are people that have it uh, way worse than I do, but sometimes what I love about the league is also what I hate about it is it's not the constant adaptation, but when you are a national writer and you're not the top one, one percentile, and at least you're not trying to be disingenuous about it. Like I'm not purposely saying something wrong or inflammatory, but if you're not uh, in that click, or if you're not a certain like person, if it's a Zach Lowe or an Akai's Duncan, they're going to assume you're wrong or that you have these uh, ill intentions, which is why I said some of the biggest honors I get is people ask me to come on their localized podcast. They're covering a singular team because in my view, it's like, Hey, you don't suck so much that they don't want you to come on this podcast. If I actually had an annoying thing about, um, annoys me most about watching NBA games is nationally. I feel like we can miss the plot too much where all of a sudden these broadcasts are talking about not only outdated information, but things that aren't even related to the game, other teams, players, upcoming free agency, I get it if it turns into a barn burner, but it'd be cool. And there are a lot of national broadcasts that do it right. It'd be cool to see um, more f- focus on the game that's happening in front of you. And if you're going to go big picture implications, maybe focus on the characters that are actually on the court or that you're watching. Um, and I, I think I've started to, the final thing that annoys me is I don't like the absolutism when it sometimes comes to covering the league where people believe that there's a right way or a wrong way to do it and that their way is more virtuous than others. And they don't come right out and say it, but they sort of hint at it uh, because they have to either over-celebrate everything or because I'm not on this podcast like talking about the substitution pattern of the, you know, the Sacramento Kings on a, the second night of a back-to-back in Thursday in January uh, when De'Aaron Fox is already seven of 17 from the floor or whatever it is, uh, or I'm not on here. I can't, I just, I can't, I won't even try to do it. I'll read up on it when you guys have questions. I'm not going to sit here and try to like break down horns or like floppy action. Uh, do you know how long it took me to you know be able to recognize like scram switches in real time? And so like, you don't like, you don't want that shit for me. And I have sometimes felt devalued because I can't, speak that way or don't even want to if i invested the time i do think that i'm confident i could go that route but i like incorporating all different elements of the league uh the games the extracurricular stuff the rumors the transactions including trades and free agency the salary cap uh minutia of it all and then yeah i'm going to dig into like x's and o's or at least like the basis of skill sets and how teams are playing i love it all and so that's another concession it's not a sacrifice in the sense like I am holier than now. I've made the sacrifice. It's it's one that you just concede, like I'm not going to be able to be an expert in anything. And so now you're just rambling on and on about nothing. Uh, so I'm just not a fan of thinking that there's only one way to cover the game or that there's even a right or wrong way. I know there is such a thing as detrimental coverage. And I went on a rant last week, I think even on the, the uncontested podcast again, about how we sometimes or too often treat smaller markets as these prospective farm systems for more glamour markets or flagship teams like that stuff's detrimental because the whole idea of this is every organization should think that if they build their team the right way or aggressive enough, get the right players that they can win a championship. If we're out here talking about Shea Gilgis Alexander leaving OKC or the day that Zion decides to leave new Orleans uh, or what's just been happening with Donovan Mitchell, that it's other teams, but including the Knicks, like they've been slobbering over him since he basically came into the NBA because of his New York roots. Um, it's it's like disingenuous and it, it hurts the product or the at least the coverage of the product in the sense that I don't think it helps educate people about how the game actually works. And then two, it creates this, um, I don't know if it's even a false, like uh, it's not false, but it creates like this idea that there are only a handful of teams that can win championships and you can't have a league like that, especially one with the NBA where there's so much talent that there's plenty of room for parity. And right now it feels like we're in a great spot when you look at the teams and how they stack up in either conference where I went through seven or eight teams on the last podcast that I thought could viably win a title next year. I didn't, I, I like, I, I forgot to include the heat on it. They should have been an honorable mention right off the bat, but like you could also throw, if you want to throw the Raptors in there, I'll listen to the argument. You want to throw the Timberwolves in there or the Lakers in there? I'm going to listen to the argument. So, the, I, there is such a thing as detrimental coverage, but 
people enjoying the game through different lenses and in different ways and covering it in different ways, um, that that isn't anything that's bad. And we need to stop the extremist takes of like, this is the right way to cover a league or shame people who don't necessarily agree with, again, if they have a detrimental opinion and they're telling they're being rude, they're telling you to fuck off. They're using misogynistic and racist language, or they're accusing you of being pro domestic violence because you think the Knicks should have media at what would normally be media events. Um, yeah, totally. Like that's detrimental criticism, but there's a bunch of different ways to enjoy the league. Enjoy it how you want. Don't feel embarrassed or pressured to enjoy it in the same way. You don't need to gaslight anyone. Don't need to be faux virtuous about it. That's where I'm at. Look, oldish man out here yelling at clouds. I'm indoors. Demos Quoll asks, what's the plan for Atlanta with DeJounte Murray and Trey in offense? Does DeJounte remove significant usage from Trey? Maybe Trey plays some more off the ball because from a two, he's the only capable of doing that. Uh, and Demos Cole has another question about KD. So yeah, this is going to be fascinating because we've been talking about this idea. Like, imagine if you got Trey Young off the ball, moving around like Steph Curry would. Trey Young can't can't screen like Steph Curry can, and so there's that. We've also I'm not going to rule out him being effective off the ball, but we can't just assume that he will be, mostly because we've just never really seen it. And so these numbers are they're they're going to sound accurate when you hear them, but they're actually kind of wild. Uh, over 83% of Trey Young's baskets went unassisted last season. That was the fourth largest share among 96 players who averaged 30 or more minutes per game. He also ranked fourth under the same criteria in 2020-2021, sixth in that criteria in 2019-2020, and ninth in 2018-2019. Assuming that Trey will seed agency over a chunk of possessions and has zero issue inciting mayhem away from the ball, are we sure with absolute certainty Murray is the creator who can take advantage of it? I don't know. He's improved his mid-range game. He's improved as a passer. I've never gotten this absolutist floor general feel from him. Having a different type of personnel around him, sure, that will help. Playing Murray and Capella at the same time, though, like things could get a little squishy in the half court, depending on who you're, you have Trey, and then is Collins on the court? Is Bogdan Mandanovich on the floor? Is it... DeAndre Hunter, like there's sort of a chance. Yeah. If it's Collins young and Bogdanovich, those are three above average shooters around those two. If it's DeAndre Hunter at this point, like maybe he's an above average shooter. So I don't know if he's the type of ball handler to do that for young, but to Demos close question, you absolutely need to try it. If, um, if you want this to work, because I do think Murray can do a little bit more off the ball. It wouldn't shock me if his standstill three point percentage ticks up a notch or eight in Atlanta. Um, and you could get him moving off the ball a little bit as well, not to come around screens and hit jumpers, but get going towards the basket because he could finish there pretty well. Uh, but again, that's a lot harder to do if Capella's on the court at the same time as him. And then where's John? Depends on where John Collins is standing. He was already uncomfortable, not uncomfortable, but he was already had a lot of corner bystanderish duty. And look, to his credit, he he did well in that role. But those are going to be questions they have to answer. I think you're probably just more comfortable staggering them now and so where the Hawks started to figure out some of the non-Trey Young minutes last year like you just have a different way of going about it now the idea of Bogdanovich and DeJounte Murray running these units without Trey Young maybe even John Collins is some of those units like maybe you just don't fall off a beat at all or you're really good defensively if Onyeka Kungwu is going to play a prominent role so I think it opens there are a higher range of outcomes for the Hawks now and there's more ways for them to reach those range of outcomes than there were before and I think the offense will still be really good, but there's a chance. And there's not a chance. I do believe one of these players and Murray or Trey is going to have to, I don't want to say be appreciably different in how they go about their business, but there's going to be a noticeable tweak in their usage when they're on the court together. And I think ultimately the thing that's going to be easier to explore and just probably have a, um, a higher end impact is can Trey play a little bit more off the ball just to throw some wrinkles into the offense. And also because, you know, he can in theory do things like fly around screens and, and hit those off balance threes or quick fire threes that you're not going to get from DeJounte Murray. Demos Cole also asked if the Celtics don't succeed in trading for KD, does that mean they have broken their relationship with Jalen Brown in the process? Should they go for Donovan Mitchell as a second option? I did respond to him that he that he chose chaos and I respect it. Uh the Jalen Brown stuff, yeah. I think I don't know if you burned a bridge. This is a business and players understand how it works, especially someone as smart as Jalen Brown. At the same time, uh, if depending on how aggressive you actually are and going about this, you don't stand and just sort of exclude him or uh, 
rankle him. If you start throwing Marcus Smart's name in there or Robert Williams the third, who I haven't heard mentioned as part of a trade package just yet, yeah, things get iffy if then you're expecting to run it back. I do think it helps that Jason Tate already came out and said, I'm happy with our team. And in the end, like maybe it's different because Brad Stevens was coaching Brown uh, at not too long ago and at one point for most of Jalen's career before uh, all of Jalen's career, excuse me, before this season. Um, but you're there for the players and the coaches mostly. And unless you know that there are players who are begging for you to leave, a la like Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert having a falling out there, James Harden, Kyrie Irving there. Um, I, I think you can overcome it a little bit more. Yes, it gets interesting when we're talking about contract talks. We know he's not going to extend because 120% raise off his salary doesn't get him anywhere near the max that he could have when he, when he hits the open market in 2024. I think it makes it more likely that he would leave if you don't trade him now, um, depending on how far talks got. And they happened weeks ago. If it was just a preliminary call, maybe it was the Nets who asked about it. Have you communicated that to Jalen Brown? Him waking up to the news and tweeting it suggests that he wasn't happy about it. But I do think players understand. And ultimately, yeah, they want to be. It's about location. It's about being happy. It's about maximizing your role. It's about your family. But I would say probably at the bottom of the list, no, you don't want to play for this shitty organization. But like you're there for your teammates more than you are the front office, I guess is my point. And if the Celtics are still want to go ahead and max him when he hits free agency, they're fine. Should the Celtics go for Donovan Mitchell is a different type question. They do need a shot creator on that level. Um, but I could also argue like, does he even, he's an upgrade as a passer over Jalen Brown. That's who you still have to give up as part of this deal, especially with the way your pick structure is there. Um, I probably wouldn't do it. I just feel like, uh, Jalen Brown's game has been described as robotic. And I think by Zach Lowe, uh, and I, I guess I would agree offensively anyway. Uh, but Donovan Mitchell, he's really good off the ball. So you could play him with Tatum rather easily. Man, that's, an, that's such an interesting question. I wouldn't give up Jalen Brown for him though. I just feel like the Celtics have kind of built their roster on players who, if they're not higher end on offense, they're complimentary. And then just like defensive disruptors. That does mean that you can sprinkle in someone like Donovan Mitchell, who's not had a, a ton of defensive highlights over the past two or three years, but it also kind of runs contrary to how you've even developed your team. And like, do you all of a sudden have to um, reshape your roster a little bit uh, because you have smart, and Malcolm Brogdon and uh, Derek White at this point are, are one of them also going out in a Donovan Mitchell deal. And this is me saying, I don't think you get Donovan Mitchell unless you're giving up Jalen Brown. And I just wouldn't do it, especially because, you know, Kevin Durant wants out of Brooklyn right now has four years left on his deal. Donovan Mitchell's at the point where would he angle for a trade in a year because he still wants to go to New York. That's an interesting, that's an interesting fit though. And if you believe, if you're the Celtics and you believe, Jalen Brown's gone in two years. Getting Donovan Mitchell with three years left on his deal could absolutely make some sense. Is it a straight-up trade there, though? I think in theory, come playoff time, Donovan Mitchell's offense is way more valuable. But what Jalen Brown can give you as a defender, that's super valuable as well. I guess because you have Smart and White and even Brogdon to some extent, um, you're more comfortable doing it. But then you also all of a sudden get like small on the wings. Uh because you have Grant Williams and Horford and Robert Williams the third. Those are all just very four or five players. Um, I guess you can consider Brogdon and White and Smart. Like you get small forward facsimiles out of there, but like Daniel Gallinari is not a wing anymore. You've assembled your team around just these two primary wings. So I think all of a sudden you would need to fill a truer wing role because, yeah, Smart can be positionless on defense, doesn't really have a wings offensive game. Ditto for Derek White and definitely Malcolm Brogdon. So I don't think I would if I'm Boston. I think the appeal of Kevin Durant is that he is another wing, like combo forward type player, just on absolute nitrous and one of the, you know, 10 to 15 greatest players of all time. Uh, our next question also came from this is topical. Probably should have put it on the top of this podcast. There's no, Glad says there's no way Golden State gives Draymond a max, right? There's also no way another team trades for him or gives him the max in free agency. Love Draymond, but that value just ain't there. I can't imagine Draymond on another team. Yeah, I can't imagine. That was a great piece from Anthony Slater and Marcus Thompson at The Athletic uh, published on Wednesday um, talking about the four extension eligible players in Jordan Poole, Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green, and Clay Thompson. I can't picture Clay, Dre, or Steph in another uniform, but if I had to pick one, I think it would 
be Draymond because he's been very open about wanting to get paid in the past and good for him. Um, do I think that he gets a max? Um, no, I don't, and ultimately I don't think he gets a max max. And if he signs an extension this summer, he's definitely not, they're not giving him the max. That being said, we need like the conversation for him. seems like it might've veered too far from reality. He had some rough moments in the playoffs, some rough moments in the finals, especially on offense uh, that did not define his entire series, his entire season before he got injured. He was the defensive player of the year favorite. And you combine that with his short roll passing and just the havoc he can create when you actually get him going downhill. The Celtics found unique ways to really um, bump him out of his element. That's something you need to concern yourself with. But if I'm the Warriors, I'm not looking as, you know, yeah, Draymond Green's next contract, it could take him through, like, what, what is he now? Is he, it would take him through his age 37 season. Is he really that, that old? Um, so you have to consider that for sure. At the same time, yeah, because he has two years left in free agency, that would be he's going to be age 32 next year, age 33 the year after. So his next deal could feasibly take him through age 34, 35, 36, 37, or age 30, depending on when he signs the extension. Um, I think this is a situation where you just wait, see what he looks like next season, uh, and there's going to be no harm, no foul uh, if you decide to wait to pay him. I think the infrastructure in Golden State is strong enough, and he can also view it as if the best offer from them, oh, and he's a player option for 23, so it's the it's the one year. That next deal, though, you're getting into his mid to late 30s. Uh, why didn't I realize he had a player option? That's a, that's a miss on my behalf. Uh, but if he's going to opt out, he's with clutch sports. They're going to know that they have an offer from another team. And do you really think a contender wouldn't just throw the bag at Draymond, even if over the, you know, if it's a two or three year max, they're like almost half the league could have a ton of cap space next year. I also think that's why I wouldn't rule out like a near max payday just because the, uh, the salary cap is projected to go up and up and up. And if it averages a $10 million jump per year, Draymond's max now is not going to be like as detrimental moving forward. No, you're not going to give him the, you know, the 40, like, are you, do you want to pay Draymond Green $40 million a year? And the answer to that is just, you know, no. And he's going to be eligible after next season. He'll be, he's at the 10 year max right now. So his theoretical, his, his max salary starting in his next deal, if he opts out of his contract next season, that could start at 46.5 million, 46.6, excuse me, million dollars. I'm not giving that for, Draymond Green, and I don't think the Warriors, they know they have to pay Thompson and Poole and Wiggins or that they're on the hook potentially for paying those guys. They're probably going to want something that's closer to his current salary right now. If there's that gully between them, I don't think Draymond's going to have a problem playing out next year because he has that player option as a safeguard, and maybe he ups his value by winning Defensive Player of the Year. This is still one of the two or three most transcendent defensive players in basketball, and he can be a very valuable offensive player. When you look at Golden State's uh, extension candidates in some, um, I, it wouldn't shock me if none of them get extensions. I know Marcus Thompson and Anthony Slater said Anthony, Andrew Wiggins has a really good chance of getting an extension, probably because you don't want him hitting unrestricted free agency next summer. Jordan Poole's a restricted free agent. I think to maintain flexibility, if he's asking for the max or anywhere near it, you just say, you played really good this year, go out and do it again, and and we'll pay you. We won't even you know make you go to the open market to find your max offer. But if he has sort of a down year, they want to make sure what they've seen last year is real and, and not for nothing, but the golden state offense without Steph Curry still not good. No matter how you sort of shape the lineups with Jordan Poole, when he's playing with Draymond and clay at the same time, that was a super small sample size, whether he's playing alone, whether he's playing with Wiggins, like the warriors offense, what was better last year when Steph was off the court than it has been, than it was the past, you know, uh, than it was in 2020, 2021 still below average. And if you're going to invest max money in someone like Jordan Poole, who was, let me make this clear. Absolutely. Fantastic last season, especially towards the tail end when um, he had just, he was just on like an absolute scorcher. I don't think he's this no brainer max candidate. And so I would bet against him getting an extension clay just like has two guaranteed years left on his deal. They'll revisit it maybe next summer after they see what he looks like. It wouldn't shock me if he, I'm not advocating for this, but he like Steph wants to be in golden state. And so, so bad. And he like Steph um, didn't get like, but he might just be more willing to take a pay cut than a Steph Curry. It's just where I would be at this point. If he's a lesser player, he might be worth less in general. And so he's willing to sign a smaller deal. Do they flip flop where like Draymond gets the clay type extension that clay has now. And then clay gets the Draymond type extension. Um, I don't know how this is all going to end. I would bet against all four players being in golden state beyond next season. I would say if we set the over under 
at 2.5 being Golden State beyond next season. I might take the at least one of them will be gone is my point long term. And finally, if you're the Warriors, you want to see how these other youngsters progress. I think that um, Wiseman and Kaminga's development could say a lot about how much you're willing to pay Draymond Green. Uh, Moses Moody's development probably says how much you're willing to pay for a Clay Thompson. I don't think they're going to be like, hey, we got Moody, so Clay, just get out of here. Or we have Kaminga, Dre, leave. Um, Jordan Poole is probably the most, uh, maybe maybe Wiggins is the most valuable long term, just because like they don't have another bigger wing defender on the wa- roster. Perhaps Kaminga fills that role though. Maybe they view him as that too. So Poole's probably like the most valuable long term, as thinking, okay, Steph Curry ages out, we need the primary shot creator. Is that Kaminga right now? We know it's not Clay. It's not going to be Draymond. So him probably followed by. Uh, Andrew Wiggins, just he's been tackling the toughest wing assignments for them. Um, but it wouldn't shock me to see them let all of this ride until the offseason. I guess I agree Wiggins would be the most likely to extend just because you want to keep him out of free agency. But if you want to maintain flexibility, reevaluate this at the end of the season after you know what you have in Looney, Kaminga, Moody, and even Poole to, a, to an extent. There. And look, can Wiggins repeat this? He was just voted in the All-Star game, didn't deserve it, was fantastic in the finals, their third best player, if not their second best player during that series. Um, then like do it again would basically be the messaging. Uh, so if I had to bet, let's set an over under on the number of players getting an extension at 1.5. I'm going to take the under here, but no, I don't think Draymond gets the max. And I think you ask for the moon and then you settle for your market value. Uh, do I think if he hits the open market and plays really well next year, that there'd be a team willing to give him the short term max. I don't have one off the top of my head, but maybe like, I mean, look at a team, with Detroit, they could have $60 million in room almost next year. Would they throw him the max? Uh, I mean, a lot of the teams are going to have cap space are just not really trying to compete again. It'd be, so there's that to consider. Would Charlotte throw him the max? They can kind of get there. I don't like Indiana. Oh, Indiana, like they could have a, a crap ton of cap space um, without all their free agent holds. That is Houston could have a shit ton of cap space. There might be teams that are just like, hey, two years, three years. Yeah, and if the Warriors aren't even willing to do that, um, they might prefer the short-term route, though. So I don't think he gets the max. I do think there will be teams, unless he gets the max from... Let's frame it this way. I think there will be teams that would pay Draymond more if he hits the open market than the Warriors would ultimately give him to stay. That's that's my bet there. I don't know if that makes it more likely that he leaves or if that's just an uncomfortable thing to admit. But I also think we need to remember that he is... Uh, still one of the most transcendent defenders of all time and still one of the two or three most transcendent defenders right now. And if you told me he played, let's just Draymond Green. If you told me he played in between 67 and 72 games next year, I am going to pick him to win defensive player of the year. I think Uh, Demos Cole asked, this will be our last question. How do you guys see, uh, how do you guys see Kessler? Is he, uh, is he the next defensive anchor or what he's I'm just laughing at something that I was reading in the chat. So I apologize to um, everyone there, but uh, he's talking about, of course, Walker Kessler who went to um, Utah as part of that trade with um, Minnesota. And he is a big man. He's a shot blocking fiend. Uh, I said this in the chat and I did watch more of him. And I think, I don't really think my opinion is as changed. Demos Cole says he's pretty mobile for his length. He was switchable as well. If Gobert could do it, I think Kessler can do it as well. He seems well-coordinated. Personally, I have him tagged as a future DPOY candidate, but maybe it's just me, so I don't know. I think Kessler needs to be in, like, really heavy drop coverage for the most part. And like I said before, Gobert sort of has this, like, angled east-west speed that I haven't seen from Kessler, who seems way more reliant on his length than the combination of that and his footwork. Uh, Maybe he just gets a lot better in the NBA. But I look, we've seen, like, bigs and drop coverage like a Brooke Lopez be really good. And if um, let's just say like if, uh, and I didn't see this from him and what I was watching, but like if he just really gets low to the ground and knows how to use his length and then the space in front of him, his advantage, Brooke Lopez held up really well in space as sort of a drop big as well. And he was garnering not two years ago. Now defensive player of the year, the year praise. So do I think that that's Edwards is ceiling a monster shot blocking fiend, but I would be flabbergasted if we're talking about him as a defensive player of the year candidate just because I don't know if he's ever going to have the playing time is what it is. I think maybe he could be a long-term NBA player. He seems like the type of big that's not going to wind up playing 
the 30 plus minutes per game consistently enough to enter that discussion. Maybe, maybe I'm actually wrong here though. Um, but he's going to need to definitely like broaden his offensive game. There was some, uh, excuse me. There was just some encouraging signs with his touch away from the basket. Uh, and you don't, to be clear, you don't need that to be a DPOY guy, but you do need like a pretty expansive offensive skill set to stay on the floor. And so how hard will he set screens in the NBA? Can he finish through NBA level contact? Those are my questions there. Uh, his length though, absolutely spectacular. And he will cover up for a lot of any speed deficiencies if he ends up having them with that length. I just, when, if we're going to compare him to Gobert, I just don't even think it's close. And I don't see that outcome for him. Um, but look, Demos Cole has been right on a lot of stuff that, I have not been. He was the one that spotted. He was talking to me about Donovan Mitchell before the magic to the magic before I even thought about it. So um, I, I think that he's going to be an extremely valuable defensive player. Um, I just, I don't see the, the go bear mold. And I, I just think, I guess that go is just a little bit faster or a lot faster. And I, to replicate what go has done when nuking plays in space. Uh, yeah. Length can help you there. But just from what I was watching, when guys get by, uh, Kessler, like he was so reliant on his length. And there are going to be guys in the NBA who are faster and are better at finishing those tough angled shots around the rim. What Gobert really did was instill the sense of fear that you had to bail out in the mid range. I didn't see that from what I watched of, of Kessler, Kessler too much. So he should get the opportunity in Utah. Like they're not really, their center rotation right now is him and Jared Vanderbilt, I guess, like would be how you think they're going to structure their their center lineup. This was great. Fun mailbag went much longer than I thought. I was going to over an hour. Shocker, because it's me and I am verbose. Thank you everyone for listening or watching. Please remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast and on YouTube, both of which would mean the world to me. Until next time, and as always, I leave you with a shout out to one, the only, the actual future defensive player of the year candidate that no one even asked me about for this mailbag, but we do know He's officially good enough to have his own Lakers jersey Photoshop, Frank Mueller.